Please open again Genesis chapter 3 if you've closed that passage because I will be referring time and time again to particular verses from, from the passage we've read. I see trees of green, red roses too. I watch them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue, clouds of white, blessed days and warm sacred nights. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of a rainbow so pretty in the sky and there on the faces of people going by. I see friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. You're glad I didn't sing that, aren't you? Adam didn't write those words for Louis Armstrong's hit record, but he could have. Because more than anyone else who has ever walked on the earth, Adam knew how wonderful this world really is. If you've been with us on the first three Sundays in January, you'll know that we've been looking together at Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we've learned there how in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth how he looked at everything that he had made and he found it to be very, very good. And then the last time when we were together a fortnight ago, we noticed how God not only gave us a wonderful world, but gave us each other. We learned that God looked on man and said that it's not good for man to be alone, that he gave the man woman and provided for them companionship in each other and also the possibility that human life would multiply and that we would know the joy of each other's company. A perfect world, perfect companionship with God, perfect fellowship with each other. It really, really is a wonderful, wonderful world. That's not the world we live in though, is it? seems that so much has gone wrong. If you look around the world that we live in today, you find that all those things I've described have, have deteriorated dramatically. Our natural environment's suffering. Uh, these days we hear so much about global warming and climate change that I wonder uh, what the effects of those, those changes will be even in my lifetime. Our human relationships are suffering. Um, that's clear on a macro scale because we still, after all these centuries, we still give so much of our time and our energy to making war on each other. Our human relationships are suffering on a micro scale as we see loneliness and alienation just flood through our land as our society disintegrates. And what about our relationship with God, that relationship that was perfect at the start of things? Well, it seems to me that looking at the Western world today, there's been no time in history when there's been such a wholesale rejection of God. That relationship, too, seems to be massively breached. What 
went wrong? What, what happened to this wonderful world that we've been learning about that God created? Well, Genesis chapter 3 is the biblical answer to that question. I better say at the outset, there's a lot in this chapter. So if you find I have to move quickly through a part that you have questions about, please forgive me. It's not because I'm trying to evade anything. And if ever I can help you, if you'd like to ask me about anything that I haven't majored on, please do come and speak to me. I promise you'll, you'll find me open and ready to help you. Let's begin at the beginning here very quickly. Look with me at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Because we read the story a few moments ago, Joanne read it for us, we know where this is going. And we know that the serpent is going to be the villain of the peace. He's going to tempt Eve and lead to her and Adam's downfall. Well, in the cultures of the Near East, serpents actually were used to represent a a lot of different things. But here in Genesis chapter 3, it's very simple what the serpent is here to represent. He's clearly here a symbol of everything that is anti-God. Although he's not named, we know who stands behind this serpent. It's Satan, as the Hebrew Old Testament would put it. It's the devil, as the New Testament Greek would have it. When you look across the whole biblical account, you find there a picture of Satan. And Satan is God's great enemy, evil in a person. Satan originates in heaven, we're told in the Bible. He isn't part of this wonderful world that God created. He originated in heaven but rebelled against God and was thrown down. Satan is wiser than any human being. But he uses his wisdom to corrupt and to bring people away from God's rule under his own rule. The chief ways in which Satan does this, the chief way in which he corrupts is through lies. And if you're not convinced about that, we're going to see that very, very clearly just in the first four verses of this chapter. His his interaction with Eve is just one massive lie, and in so many ways. First of all, he doubts God. He says, did God really say? And then he goes on to twist God's word. He does this with a very real purpose. He wants Eve to think that God is cruel and selfish. That's important to Satan. Look look at what he says. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? No, God didn't say that. Because as we look, if you look back to chapter 2 and verse 16, the Lord commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Satan takes God's words and makes them into a lie. The truth is that God's been wonderfully generous to Adam and Eve, and he's given them this whole garden as their own. But Satan comes and and suggests that God is, is far from generous. If you look down at verse 4, his lying snowballs, he denies outright now what God says. He says, you will not surely die. Satan here calls God a liar. God has said that if Adam and Eve eat from the tree, they'll die. And Satan says, well, God's a liar. That's not true. And finally, in verse 5, he questions God's motives in all of this. 
God knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. His final lie is that God's a spoiled sport. That God has set up the universe in such a way to prevent us from having fullness of life and joy. By the way, there's something I want to say if you're, you're reading this and you're struggling with the idea of a serpent speaking to a woman. I would say it's hard to know exactly how Eve experienced what we are reading in these first five verses. I'm not convinced, for example, that we have to imagine that there was a, a snake who audibly spoke to Eve with a voice that both she would have heard and Adam would have heard. I'm not convinced that the Bible requires us to believe that. It's not crucial to the integrity of the Bible at this point. It's possible that what the narrator is doing here is he's describing the psychological effects, if you like, of temptation. Now, what do I mean by that? Every one of us has heard a voice in our head at times calling us to do the things we know we ought not to do and to forget about those things that we know we ought to do. We have all heard that voice from time to time, and we've heard it without a snake being present or any other agent with an audible voice. My, my advice is don't get too caught up in that. The important thing is that we understand what's going on here. And the important thing that's going on here is the entry of Satan, the father of lies, into human existence. Just before we come to look at what, what actually happens in response to the temptation here. I want to go back for a second and to say what definitely isn't happening here. If we, uh, this is so crucial, it really struck me as I was preparing this, if we misunderstand this crucial story in the Bible, we're going to have massive misgivings and misunderstandings about God and who God is. Genesis 3 is not, I repeat, it's not an account of God making an arbitrary rule about who can or who can't eat an apple from a tree in a garden. That is not what Genesis 3 is about. If that's how we're thinking about this chapter, then I think we're going to have a picture of God, an image of God as some grumpy old Victorian schoolmaster who makes rules precisely to prevent people from having fun and who then becomes irate if he finds, heaven forbid, that somebody actually is having fun. I think that's the picture of God that some people have. It's not what Genesis 3 is about. To try and understand what's going on here in Genesis 3, we do have to think for a second about the trees that are at the heart of this temptation. So bear with me just a second. Look back to chapter 2 and verse 9. We read there that the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow up out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So let's begin quickly with the tree of life. God wants human beings to experience life in all its fullness. This is the account of God that's given in scriptures. In the book of Proverbs, the tree of life crops up time and time again as an image. 
And it's used there as an image of anything that heals, anything that enhances, anything that celebrates life. God put this tree in the garden, and you'll notice there's no prohibition. That tree we can eat of. The fullness, the absolute wonder and beauty of life is ours for the taking. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10? I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. That's what God wants for us. The second tree that we read about here is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's the tree that God commands Adam and Eve not to eat of. Look again at verse 17. You must not, sorry, chapter 2, verse 17. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you'll surely die. Now, what's going on here? Eating from this tree would signal Adam and Eve's intent, their desire to investigate good and evil for themselves. It would mean that rather than taking God's word for what's good and what's evil, for what's right and for what's wrong, they'd look for that themselves. Rather than obeying God's law, they'd be a law unto themselves. Now that we've cleared that up, I think we're in a better position to understand what the temptation actually is that Adam and Eve face here and what actually happened at the fall. Before the fall, Adam and Eve both thought clearly and thought right about the world. They both understood that God had given them life. They understood that they were dependent on God. They understood that as creatures, obedience is the proper way to relate to God. Now, it's important again that we understand something here. Adam and Eve weren't robots. They weren't programmed to respond positively to God. They were given a choice. They were given the choice to love God and to obey him or else to rebel and to turn away from him. The writer Philip Yancey puts it like this. He says that the the created human race were like sculptors who could choose to spit at the sculptor. We're like characters in a play who could choose to rip up the script and rewrite the lines. In a word, we are free. So what happens here at the fall is that for reasons that nobody can properly understand, Adam and Eve choose to do the unthinkable. They choose to exercise their free will against God, away from him, to the exclusion of him. They accepted Satan's invitation, really. And his suggestion that life could be better without God than it is with him. Well, where did it all go wrong? Why did Adam choose to jeopardize this wonderful world that he'd been placed in? The answer is the same as as the answer every time any one of us sins against God. We sin against God and we rebel against him whenever we become suspicious of God. Suspicious that he isn't good. Suspicious that he doesn't hold our best interest at heart. We begin to imagine that we could somehow have a better life without God. 
Doesn't that make a lot of sense to you? Isn't that why a lot of people have never decided to follow Jesus Christ? It's because they believe that life is better without God. A sad, a sad uh, corollary of that, I'm afraid, is that even among us who have decided to follow Jesus Christ, this is the reason why we hold back in committing ourselves further and further to God. It's because at our heart of hearts, we're still suspicious of God a little bit. We're still not entirely convinced that if we throw everything before him, if we open the whole of our lives to him, he will give us the best. The big question of Genesis chapter 3 is one that you and I face at the very, very heart of our lives, and that is, can we and do we trust God? Do we really believe that God wants the very best for us? Can I take him at his word and believe that if I follow Jesus Christ, I'll have the best life that there is? We don't have too much time left this morning, and in a sense, I'm relieved about that because I find it hard to dwell on the consequences of Adam and Eve's choice. But to be faithful in my preaching, I must. What we find here in Genesis 3 is that as soon as Adam and Eve rebel against God, the wonderful world that they're in falls apart. And it falls apart at every different level. First of all, they realize that they're naked and they feel ashamed. If you, if you were here with us a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember that at the end of chapter 2, we read that they were naked as they were created, but they felt no shame. And really, that was just an image of, of the closeness that they had, the full trust that they had, their vulnerability to one another. There was nothing between these two. All of a sudden, the barriers start to crop up. They realize that they're naked and they're ashamed. They begin to hide each other from one another. You can see this, this disintegration in their human relationships further down in the chapter. Whenever God asks, have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? And immediately Adam blames Eve. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Did you notice Adam doesn't even just blame Eve. He blames God. The woman that you put here. In one fell swoop, Adam is pushing away the woman God has given him, and he's pushing away God himself. All the relationships have fragmented. Look down with me at verses 8 to 11. Previously, God had walked in the garden and it's a picture that I find just astonishing. God walked in the garden, and the expectation is that he would, would meet Adam and Eve face to face, and that they would be together. But what we find here is that as a consequence of their sin, they hide from God, and they, they are afraid. Now, in the interests of time, I'm going to leave verses 14 to 19 and we might get a chance to, to look at those next time we, we look at Genesis chapter 4 together. But I want to close this morning by looking at the last few verses of the chapter. Here we find the full tragedy of Adam and Eve's sin. Look at verse 22. 
And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take over, take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove him out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Isn't that just tragic? The man and the woman who had been created for perfect fellowship with God have to be banished from the garden where they knew God's presence. And not only that, cherubim are placed on guard to make sure that there's no way back in. Isn't that just tragic? These, these cherubim, by the way, these, these crop up time and time again through the, the scriptures, and they have one purpose. They guard the presence of God. They're like bouncers, and they keep people out. You see that here at the Garden of Eden. You see it also with the Ark of the Covenant, where there are two cherubim standing on the surface of it. You find it woven into the curtain in the temple, keeping people from the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. In Genesis chapter 3, and I'm nearly finished here, we are presented with the fundamental problem of humanity. How will we ever get back to God? How will we ever get past the security? Will the curtain in the temple ever be torn asunder? I want to leave you this morning with the good news that we don't find in Genesis 3, but we find later on in our Bibles. Do you remember we learned this? Not so long ago, actually, in November, when we were looking at some chapters from Mark's Gospel and our Christianity Explored. Mark tells us in a very, very powerful way of what happened when Jesus Christ died. Listen to this. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. As soon as Jesus dies, we're taken from Calvary, the hill outside of Jerusalem, and we're taken right into the center of the city, to the temple. We see before us an incredible thing, a curtain 30 foot high, as thick as the span of my hand. And the curtain is embroidered all over with cherubim. The guards are in place. God's presence is not open to you or to me. And the astonishing thing is that as soon as Jesus Christ dies, we hear a thundering ripping sound as that curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. It's been torn from the top because it's God himself who's tearing it. And the message is as clear as day. The message is that because Jesus has died, the barriers are down. The cherubim have been decommissioned. They have been sent from their watch. The garden is reopened. The temple is open, all of it, 
because God is now ready once more to be with his people. Friends, the wonderful world isn't a dead dream. It's a reality. And some of us have begun to re-experience it, if you like. We're back in the presence of God. It's possible for everyone. Will you come in? Will you come in? Let us pray.